Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Chuck blocks it. And it comes to the near side. Kimberchuk back to Clement to break away. He scores! Bill Clement for a case of tasty cake, and it's 2-0 Flyers. Clement mobbed by his whole bench as the Flyers come out on that. Welcome back. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack, now on Saturday at noon. It is time for Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. Well, Bill Clement is a Philadelphia hockey institution. He played four years for the Flyers during their glory days, scoring the put-it-away goal in their Stanley Cup repeat clincher in 1975. After 11 NHL seasons, Bill went on to a tremendously successful career as a broadcaster, many of those years as a color man and analyst for Flyers games. He joins us now from his home in North Carolina. Bill, thanks for being our guest today. Pleasure to be on board. Uh, We always like to start with uh, our guest's childhood. Uh, You grew up in, if I have this right, Thurzo, Quebec, um, a French-speaking city. Uh, in fact, you grew up two blocks from Guy Lafleur, who we learned recently passed away, and and played hockey with him as a kid. Uh, what was that like? Well, I was as in awe of Guy Lafleur playing with him uh, and watching him as a kid before I got to play with him, as you know, millions of hockey fans were for so many years. He was um, just an incredible. Before there was a Gretzky, and before there was a Mario Lemieux. And before there was social media, before there was internet, Guy was a household name in the province of Quebec because he had come within a hair of, of winning the Quebec Pee Wee Tournament, which is the biggest amateur hockey tournament in the world. And, you know, this ragtag bunch of kids from Thurso um, just about beat, and they were a Class C, I believe, based on population. Thurso had 3,000 people. Uh, Thurso played in the championship game against one of the big teams from Toronto and almost beat them. So everybody knew who Guy was, and I certainly did. I, it's funny, I'm, I'm kind of a, an anomaly because I grew up English in the province of Quebec. I went to a little English school. I also grew up Protestant, and our town was almost completely French Catholic. So the, the English kids weren't invited to play on the town team. 
um, until a very progress, progressive brother of the Catholic order came to came to run the Catholic school in my hometown and invited the English kids and the Protestant kids to try out for the town team. And I immediately made it um, and uh, ended up playing uh, three seasons with Guy. And he played up a year. Uh, he's actually uh, was um, his soul rest in peace. Uh, he was nine months younger than I was. And um, so we, we he played up a year and we were able to play three years together, and we left We left home the same year. He was 14 and I was 15. We both made junior teams in the Quebec League and, and went on to our pro careers. Bill, it was obvious that you um, you had a lot of you had a lot of talent. That was pretty obvious from the beginning. But when did when did it begin to dawn on you that you might that this might not just be a game that you were playing as a kid that that, that hockey might be your future? How at what age were you that you began to be scouted and you began to think that maybe you could take this further? Well, I was scouted when I was 15 by the Chicago Blackhawks, and that's why I, I left home and went to the, a, a team in the Quebec League. Um, and it, there were 21-year-olds on our team, and I was 15. Um, there were 74 guys at camp to, in, in the town called Sorrell uh, to try to make the Sorrell Blackhawks, which was one of the junior farm teams of the uh, Chicago Blackhawks at the time. And there were four openings. And I was big uh, by by standards then, and I could really skate, and they ended up making the team did it dawn on me that the nhl was ahead somewhere on the road no not at that age i I think it was probably when i was 18 and by that time was playing for the ottawa 67s i was an original i was an original of ottawa 67 in 1967 Mm -hmm. we were an expansion team by the time i was 18 i i our coach was actually telling me look if you take care of yourself and keep working as hard as you work um, there's a pretty good chance you're going to end up in the NHL and you might even end up being a first round pick, which never happened. I was drafted uh, early in the second round, but that's probably when it, it dawned on me that it could be a reality. But it's really interesting that you asked that question because I don't know, about 35 years ago, I mean, I, I turned 71 last, uh, last December, but I went to a little school reunion. There were only three school rooms, uh, rooms in the school where I went until the year I went to school and it expanded to five big rooms and a gymnasium. But at the school reunion, uh, and I had no recollection of this, the kids that I went to school with said, you know, you always said you were going to play in the NHL. And I had no recollection <laughs> of, of making that statement. But <laughs> it reminded me years later when I understood the, imp- the importance in any endeavor of starting with the end in mind, uh, it reminded me that so many things are possible if you start with the end in mind. So I guess I had my sights set on the target when I was a kid, but it only be- became a reality or, or started to become real when I was about 18. Bill Clement is our guest on Tell Us Your Story. You mentioned those uh, Ottawa 67s when they started. I look, man, the first team went six wins, 45 losses, and three ties. Had yeah, to be tough. That year, fortunately, that year I broke my arm oh. and, and, and missed most of those games. That's it. They would have won those games. Uh, and you played yeah, with some right. terrific players. You played with Danny Potvin and Blake Dunlap and Bunny LaRock down there. Um, yeah. You you were not I, I I did not see you play in those days. Obviously, you were not a prolific scorer. Your third and final season, you had 19 goals in 54 games, uh, and you weren't a first round pick, but you were a second round pick, as you said, 18th overall, which is, you know, these days would be middle of the first round. What was the skill set you had that was attractive to the NHL at that point? Uh, skating ability, work ethic, defensive ability. 
the one thing that was lacking was offensive ability. And that's why I spent a year in the minors and the Flyers, our coach was named Eddie Bush and the Flyers and Keith Allen gave him strict instructions not to let me kill any penalties, which was like depriving me of what I needed to breathe and, and eat. And he, they, they said, just let him play power play all the time. But the reason I wasn't as gifted offensively was I didn't start playing organized hockey till I was 12. I, I told you about not being invited to play real organized hockey when I made it when I was 12. I guess I was shy and insecure and, and always felt there was somebody else on the team that could, you know, put the puck behind a goalie better than I could. So I dished all the time. And to the point where, you know, it, be, it became problematic. <laughs> you got to shoot, you got to shoot. Uh, but I always felt there was somebody else that could that put the puck away better than I could. So I, I, I dug pucks out. I opened ice up for other players and then passed off. And it, it's funny. One of the, you know, when people say, you know, what are your greatest memories of your career? Well, winning two Stanley Cups, obviously, is number one. But they said, what, what, do, what do you consider great individual achievements? And I never scored 20 goals at any level of my life until I made it to the NHL. And I had three 20-goal seasons, which which doesn't make me a Hall of Famer, but it allows me to answer the question when I've been asked over the years, are, are scorers made or are they developed? And I said, well, look, the big guy upstairs is the only guy that can make you a 60-goal scorer, but I'm living walking proof that if you work at it hard enough and stick with it long enough and are afforded the opportunity, that everybody can improve. Um, so yeah, that, I, I got a real late start playing, didn't think I was good enough to shoot the puck and score. And as a result, those last couple of years, junior, there were no twenties anywhere. It was 18 mm-hmm. goals and then 19 goals. But as you said, you, you, you became known as a very good defensive player. You could really skate. You understood the principles of defense. Uh, right. and you can, you came along and you came along in, in, and in junior era where there were a lot of really dynamic centermen who later on became stars in the NHL. Uh, one of them was Gilles Perrault, who you, who you had a shadow when you were a junior and also a guy yeah. that beca- and also a guy that became your teammate in Philadelphia. And that was Rick McLeish. Yeah. Every team had a dynamic center. Most of the teams did. And as an expansion team coming into Ottawa, um, our coach knew that one of the things we had to do was to shut down the the opponent our opponent's top center so he would just tell me follow him around and don't let him touch the puck so that was another reason that I didn't score that many goals or develop many offensive skills and and it got to the point where a guy like Gilbert Perot would have me trailing him to his bench I'd spin off to go back to our bench and and he would just do a little button hook at the door <laughs> he, he would fake going off right so he could keep playing. But I mean, I, I shadowed uh, Marcel Dion, Daryl Sittler, Rick McLeish, Dale Talon, of course, Gilbert Perot. Um, there was every, every team had one. If we played a team that didn't have a dominant center, I was kind of turned loose, so to speak. At least I didn't have that, that limiting assignment of, of never caring about touching the puck. <laughs> Coach Bill Long would say, I don't care if you ever touch the puck, just don't let him touch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that, that didn't really lend itself to developing that offensive skill that I lacked. So you get drafted by the Flyers. As you say, you start out in the AHL and then you get, you come up, uh, December, 1971, your second game in the NHL against the Canadians, you get an assist a minute 42 into the game goal, rare goal by Ed Van Imp, by the way. And then you score your first NHL, NHL goal later in that period, one period 
a goal and an assist. Do you remember the play? Do you remember your first goal? Oh, hell yeah. Um, I, I actually, and you know, for a guy that didn't shoot very much, I was one-on-one against Jacques LaPerriere, a defenseman for Montreal. Ken Dryden was in goal. And I got to the blue line, and LaPerriere gave me the blue line. He backed in over the blue line just enough for me to, you know, to, to take a mighty wind-up and blast a shot. And it just blew by Ken Dryden. And I can tell you fans in Philadelphia waited for four years for me to do that again. And it never, <laughs> and it never happened. It was, I don't think I've ever shot a puck harder than that. Uh, but I do remember it. I ended up getting a goal and an assist my fourth game in too against Buffalo and, and was there to stay. What, what's really interesting too, about my, my rise from the minors to the NHL, I feel very fortunate that, I didn't have to go up and down and up and down. That's so hard emotionally, you know, on a young player. I, I, I was called up when I was called up. I never played another game in the minors. Mm-hmm. But I found out years later from the Flyers director of player personnel, Marcel Peltier, that um, that that I was kept in the minors longer than I should have been. Our coach was a guy named Eddie Bush that coached against me in junior. He coached in Hamilton, and then he came and coached in Quebec. And in the next year, I, I, I started, spent a couple of months in Richmond in the American League. And I, I found out, too, from our junior coach in Ottawa that Eddie Bush had always tried to trade for me. He loved my work ethic. He loved, you know, how just I, I was kind of a workaholic. That's how I played. And he wanted to trade for me. Well, all of a sudden, he's coaching pro, and he has me on his roster. And Marcel Peltier told me that every week they would call down and talk. There wasn't instant video available. And they would ask Eddie how I was doing. And he, he would say, oh, he's struggling. He's not doing very well. <laughs> and I, was, I, I thought I was playing pretty damn well. So Marcel Peltier and Keith Allen came down on December the, what did you say, Ray? The, the date that I played my, uh, my first NHL game was December the 19th, I think. Or 18th, right, I just right, said December like 1971, that. right. Right, right. Well, Marcel and Keith Allen came down and watched one game, and I was called up the very they, – they told me right after the game, get on a plane tomorrow, you're going to play for us in Detroit. So I played in Richmond in the American League on a Friday night in Detroit for the Flyers on a Saturday night, and that game against Montreal on the Spectrum was the third game in three nights with travel. So I was kind of running on adrenaline. Maybe that's why I, I took that one shot so hard. Uh, but I, I probably would have been in the NHL a couple of months sooner had Eddie, Eddie Bush not really liked having me on his roster. Crazy. <laughs> Did you, uh, when you, and you, and you were aware of the organization, you were aware who was playing on the big club, but when you looked around, and you're, you were a natural center, you always were from the time you started playing, when you looked at the team that, uh, that you were going to be joining and you saw how strong they were down the middle when they have, they have, they have Bobby Clark, they have Rick McLeish, they have Oris Kinderchuk, who's a very useful little player that, uh, that, that, that they loved. Uh, and then later on they trade for Terry Crisp. I mean, you're looking around, uh, is it, does it cross your mind that, you know, where's, where's my role here? How do, how do I fit in? Yeah, a- absolutely. But, but it, 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 it dawned on me that, I mean, the fir- first thing I did when I was drafted by the Flyers, I, I was at the draft in Montreal at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. It wasn't a big deal that it is today, and I was drafted by the Flyers. My first first thought was, who the hell do they have down the middle, right? So, so I wanted to kind of evaluate my chances of making the team. But I actually was a member of the organization before Rick McLeish and before Oris Kinderchuk. And 
when I looked at the roster, the centers were Jimmy Johnson, Gary Peters, Serge Bernier. Of course, Clarkey was, you know, leading the pack, even as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old. So things changed pretty quickly uh, with the roster. And we acquired Orist. I, I was clicking along, I thought, pretty well with my position. Um, but then Orist Kinderchuk came along. And while I could skate circles around him, he protected the puck, played with his head up, distributed the puck. And he was a kind of a natural center to play between Don Selesky and Dave Schultz. Um, and then, and then Ricky, when Rick McLeish kind of exploded in the NHL, um, I'm not sure who was going to take his job. I mean, he was a 50 goal scorer the one year he fit in perfectly with, with Ross Lonsbury and Gary Dornhofer, who I had centered for a little while at the start, but they had more puck skills than I, than I did. And it, it, it kind of became a revolving door of about five or six of us for the last three spots uh, at the forward position, myself, uh, Hound Kelly, uh, Terry Crisp. Um, and, and, and that's the way it was. It was kind of just a rotation. Freddie worked a lot of us in and out of the lineup. There's no question we had a, a deep roster, but I, I've always felt that the difference between our roster and, the, say, the Boston Bruins when we won our first Stanley Cup was our lower-level guys, so the guys that were not top six forwards, were not you know the, the top players in the roster, I, I always believe we were made to feel by Freddie and by the leaders on our team, Eddie Van Emp and Joe Watson and Bobby Clark. We were made to feel that our roles were important. And that's when I learned that if you feel important, you'll play important. And and I'm not sure that, that the that the lower guys on the roster for the Bruins felt that way. It was mm-hmm. all or all Esposito, you know, the, the the huge names, everything revolved around them. Our roster was full of star like players like Bobby Clark that shared, right? That shared and praised and, and demanded. I mean Clarkie was able to have the tough conversation, even as a guy in his young twenties, I'm talking the one-on-one conversations with with individual players, which most leaders and people can't have when they're that young. Um, so, yeah, we, we were sort of in a rotation in another lineup, a number of us, and it it seemed to work. Bill, you you mentioned a lot of names there. Bill Clement is our guest for Tell Us Your Story, and um, from from when you came up, you know, in, De- in December '71 through. Uh, up to and including when the team won those cups, it it transitioned. It became the Broad Street Bullies and Schultz and Kelly and Zaleski and Dupont, the whole yep. the whole crew. You are not a shrinking violet, but the most penalty minutes you ever had in a season is fifty one. Um, you were, if you get this reference, kind of the Michael Antkian is Nick Braden in Slapshot. Um, <laughs> what was that like for you to to be a guy on a team where hey? There were great stars on that team, you know, Bernie and Clark and Barber and so on. But that was kind of the the brand of the team. Yeah. um, Well, whether you wanted to be or not, you were in the middle of it, right? I mean, when when it hit the fan, uh, everybody was, was in on it. And I recognized it as one of the, one of the important components of how we won games. And that was with intimidation. I mean, I, I didn't fight. I, I probably had one fight a year just to announce that I would if I had to. Mm-hmm. Um, Terry Crisp didn't, didn't fight uh, very much at all, if at all. So 
you know, Joe Watson never fought. Jimmy never fought. Eddie used a stick, and it was intimidating. <laughs> so we had, we had a bunch of guys that didn't fight very much, but we also had a, a nucleus of players, including the baddest animal in the hockey jungle, Dave Schultz. We we had enough guys to do the heavy lifting that the rest of us didn't really have to. We had to stand up for ourselves, and very often our teammates would stand up for us. But there's there's no question that, that one of the ingredients to us being champions was our ability to intimidate. But, but I, that said, our, our win against the Boston Bruins was significant because they they weren't a team that was that we could intimidate. I mean, they were tougher than nails, mm-hmm. all of them. You know, Bobby Orr was a tough player. You know, Phil just kept playing. Phil Esposito, Terry O'Reilly was an animal oh, yeah. the way he played. So I, I don't think anybody could say that we've won the series against the Boston Bruins because we intimidated them. Um, I can say that I believe we did the next year against the Buffalo Sabres. They, they had, their tough guys were pseudo-tough guys. Our tough guys were really tough guys. Um, so I, I recognize the toughness of our team as one of the key ingredients to winning. So I, I didn't, I certainly didn't mind being part of it. The greatest line I, that, that I've ever heard about what it was like to come into the spectrum and play. And I knew that I had to, I played almost seven seasons after I left the Flyers organization. So coming to play in, in the spectrum was intimidating, even for me coming back but the best line about what it was like being a visiting player coming into the spectrum was my great friend, Brian Englom, who won Stanley Cups in Montreal, and I worked with him on TV for a number of years. He said, it was really interesting, he said, when the bus would pull into the spectrum, down underneath the spectrum, and that great big garage door would close behind the bus, when he played for the Montreal Canadiens, the bus driver would turn off the bus, and it would still be shaking. <laughs> Wow! So that's let's, what it was uh, like for other teams to come in and play against. Us. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's take a quick break and then uh, let's go through those cups. Let's go through your career and let's get to the broadcasting part of your career, which, uh, boy, a lot of decades, a lot of greatness. Billy Clement is our guest today on Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. 
Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Slash WIP. Yes, this is Cochise, son of grilled cheese here. (laughs) Right out of a John Wayne Western saga. Duke, what do you think? Well, I thought the game was yesterday, and here it is Easter today. (laughs) What do you say? It's incredible. What are your impressions of this game? Do somebody else do a boom boom Jeffrey on? Hey, I want to guarantee you, hockey's fan across Canada and the United States, that this is one of the greatest hockey game ever in the histories of the National Hockey League. And if you ever heard me, Boomers Jeffrey on, you know me from the Miller Lite commercials. I'm one of the greatest that ever played the games of hockey in this world. Thank you. Well, that voice you just heard imitating John Wayne and Boom Boom Jeffrey on his Bill Clement, uh, a part of the Flyer Stanley Cup teams back in their glory days and a terrific broadcaster for many decades. He joins us today on Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. Bill, we were talking right before the break there. We were talking about the run to the first cup and meeting the the Boston Bruins in the finals, which was a team that the Flyers had never had any success with in their in the early years of their history, beating them anywhere they had. I think they had only won one game in their history in Boston Garden, and now you got to play them best of seven for the Stanley Cup with them with home ice advantage. But we had Bobby Clark on um, earlier in this series to do tell us your story, uh, and we talked about that series. And Clark, he said, "Yeah, everybody thought that it was a big upset, and nobody picked us to win, but we," he said, "we as a group, as a team." We felt we were every bit as good as them, if not better. And then he went right down the line. He said, you know, I could play Esposito. I didn't, and they didn't have anybody that could play McLeish. Uh, and he said, an or was or. Everybody knew that he was the greatest player. He said, but if you went up and down our – and, you know, their goalie was good, but ours was great. He said, if you went man for man beyond or, he said, we felt – nobody else felt that way, but we felt that we matched up very well with the Boston Bruins. Yeah, and that, that, that whole mentality was hatched by – by Clarkey and by, by Fred Shiro. And I, I guess if you're, if you're an athlete and you're a young athlete, you don't know any better. And your leaders are saying, you know what, we're as good as they are. And here's why. And go through it. You start, you start drinking the Kool-Aid and going, hell yeah. You know, why, why not? Uh, all we, of course you, you brought up a good point. We hadn't won in seven years in Boston a total of 31 games right. and we had to win one, right. right? Because we didn't have home ice advantage. So, you know, the game one was tied and we, we lost game one with 22 seconds to go, which was incredibly deflating. Um, I was in a cast for some torn ligament in my knee. Uh, so I didn't play game one and I'll never, you know, I've talked to people over the years about, um, stepping out of the playbook and reading from a different script. And that's what Freddie did after game one. Uh, Freddie, we had, we had, you know, a meal after game one that we had lost in a heartbreaker. Then Freddie said, okay, everybody listen up. Tomorrow was an off day. He said, I'm going to give you a choice. You can go down to Boston garden and ride the bus down there. We were staying at a hotel out of town that had a golf course built around it. He said, you can go down and practice for an hour or, 
you can play nine holes of golf and turn your scorecard into me. And we, we all kind of looked at each other like Freddie had just grown a second head or a third eye in his head or something. Like, what? Like, was he serious? And uh, I, I've, I've told this story to people, and I said, so what do you think we voted to do? And, and most people said, well, you had to go and practice, right? I said, no, we golfed. Like I, I was in my cast. I golfed and actually took care of my slice. I should have kept the cast on <laughs> for years after that. So we, we golfed, and then dramatically in game two, you know, with less than a minute to go, we tied it, and Clarkie won it in overtime, and we had our one game that we won. Uh, but Joe Watson tells the best story about getting off the off the plane and walking through the airport and picking up a newspaper and the the headline saying, you know, we all we've already beat a team better than the Boston Bruins, and it was quoting a member of the Flyers organization. And Joe was, you know, walking along, saying, "Who the who the hell would say that? Why the hell does what, what the hell's going on?" You know, Joe, like, and Freddie Freddie Shiro was walking beside him, and Freddie said, "I said it." <laughs> said, I, I, really, I really thought the Rangers were a better team than the Bruins. He said, I think we just beat a team better than the Boston Bruins, and it made headlines. Uh, but but Freddie was so brave. You know, he he didn't follow the same script that any other coach. Like, don't give them any chance to put anything up on their, bill, on their, on their wall in the locker room. Freddie was like, well, to hell with that. You know, let's, let's just let's go for it. Um, and it was um, just a, a dramatic time and a dramatic series all the way around, including – Including holding our breath in a one nothing game six victory to clinch. We we I think we, like Bobby Clark could tell you that he was confident we would win no matter what, but I think most of the guys would say that if we had to go back to Boston for a game seven, we didn't like our chances. Sure. So you win, and then is what I think a lot of people regard as the greatest, the I guess the first in a long time, the best parade in city history. What do you remember about the parade? Mayhem. I mean, it was so scary. Nobody knew that what the parade was going to be like. So they put each guy and his girlfriend or his wife in a car, right? Some convertible, some otherwise. And as we started the parade, I can't tell you where it started even or where, where it was supposed to end up. The, uh, the, I mean, Clarkie and Bernie ditched the parade. It was such a massive humanity that we all felt threatened, like we were in a almost like in a riot situation. I, re, I remember a, uh, one of the mounted cops on, on his horse between they, they put they ended up having to get a horse and a cop in between each car uh, so that they could swing their horses back and forth from side to side and literally knock people out of the way mm-hmm. so the cars could get through. And we it was I, I was. It was really scary. I mean, if you were claustrophobic, you had a problem to begin with. But there was—I I saw a horse fell on on one of the on one of the fans, and and the fan got injured. So it, it really, I think, took the whole city by surprise. Nobody, including the police force or the flyers or anybody, had any idea that that first parade was going to be as, as well. I guess we could say as successful because if you want to just evaluate success based on the number of people that attended the parade. It was that. Yeah. But man, oh man, was it mayhem. Yeah, the city was, um, the city's expectation, they told the police to prepare for 100,000 people. Um, is, that what the, is that what was told, really? Yeah, that was the, poli- the, the police were told, prepare as if you're going to be dealing with 100,000 people. And they never expected it to be that. I mean, they thought they were way overstating it at 100,000. But let's say 100,000. Well, Bill, 2 million people came. And, they were, and you're right, and, and the, they were completely overwhelmed. It was supposed to, it started down at the Spectrum, 
and it was supposed to work its way through Center City and end up at Independence Hall. That's where the final that's where the final point was. But I mean, when once you got into the big buildings downtown, you're right, you just couldn't move. Yeah. Um I was really relieved when the parade ended. Um and I I don't even know how, how law enforcement communicated then. It was out of control. It it really was. I'm I'm really happy that you know nobody was seriously hurt. But but that really was the signal of the true love affair between the Broad Street bullies and the city of Philadelphia. Yeah. I mean that 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 should have been the that's that's the big billboard, right? The big neon billboard that flashed love affair flyers and and uh, Philadelphia, and it, it it never stopped for years and years and years. So you win that year. And then they always say uh, repeating is twice as tough, but you guys do. Um, next year, finals against Buffalo uh, goes to game six. By the way, Bill, I was in the seats as a teenage kid watching that game in Buffalo rooting against you. Uh, but you broke my heart because it's a scoreless game through two periods. Bernie versus Roger Crozier. Bob Kelly scores, I think it's like 11 seconds into the third period. And then with under three minutes to go, you score the goal that just puts it away, 2 nothing win, biggest goal of your career. Bill, every kid's dream, you got to live that. Yeah, and when I look back at it, I'm still kind of surprised at it um, in the sense that, um, well, first of all, Oris Kinderchuk sacrificed his body and sacrificed, I think, some of his career because he took a, he got killed. They double-covered him, Jerry Korab, and I guess it was Bill Heider, Lee Fogelin along the boards, and they crushed Oris, but they made a bad mistake. They both took him, and I was wide open coming across the blue line, and Oris, as great a passer as he was, was able to get me the puck. And, you know, I, I knew I could skate, so I always would do a kind of a mental rehearsal before a game about a breakaway. Like, if I get a breakaway, what am I going to do? Well, Roger Crozier, I knew that he caught with his right hand, and I knew that he really, really crouched low. And I said to myself, okay, remember this. If you get a breakaway, think high glove on Crozier. So Oris got me the puck, and it, it seemed when I thought back, at, I, I, hadn't, I, I went years without seeing a replay of it. And it seemed like I thought of, of so many things, and I thought, I had quite a bit of time to think about this. The truth is that everything happened in about one second. I got the puck, I took it across the pass across my body, and I got it in the shooting position, and I'm thinking, high glove. And all I can see is five hole. And I knew, I, I, I heard Roger Crozier interviewed once, and he said, look, the, the thing that goalies have to remember is you never make the first move on a shooter. Right. Let the person coming in on you on a breakaway make the first move and then react to it. So I thought, okay, so chances are he ain't going to move. So I went in, 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 and I I was in the crease, I think, when I chipped it between his pads and I came close, if, if not touching one of his pads. I was that close to him and it was so, it seemed so easy. That and it, and, it, and it shouldn't have been for me because I wasn't a prolific goal scorer, but it seemed my thought process, it all worked. It seemed so easy that I was sure that there had to be a whistle that I hadn't heard and that everybody had stopped playing. Mm-hmm. But then Joe Watson tackled me, and I knew it was real because he was screaming in my ear, and, and I, I kind of got mobbed on the ice. And when I got to the bench, it, I was kind of in disbelief. Like, could this have really just happened? 
and it, sure enough, it did, and away we went. Uh, <laughs> but that was, then again, that was part of what our team was all about. Here we are in a, in a potential elimination game, which it turned out to be, and who are the guys that score the goals? Bob Kelly and Bill Clement, right? Yeah. And we, we, we all chipped in when we had to. I remember I remember interviewing Keith Allen um, in a couple years after all of that, uh, and he said, you know, what Billy didn't know when he scored that goal was he had, in effect, already been traded. That um, th- that even while the series was going on, he and Milt Schmidt, the general manager of the Washington Caps, uh, had already discussed and agreed in principle for the trade that was going to send you to Washington when this was all said and done, the deal that was going to send you there for the first pick in the next draft, which turns out to be Mel Bridgman, they had already shaken, they had already shaken hands and agreed to the trade before the series was ever over. So you were in effect already on, uh, you know, when you scored the goal that wins the cup for the flyers, the general manager had already in effect traded you. Yeah, that wasn't really very nice. Was it? I mean, for for him to do (laughs) So a couple of interesting things about that. The, the day of game six in Buffalo, there was an article in the, in the lead Buffalo in Buffalo News that one of either Bill Clement, Dave Schultz, Terry Chris, Bob Kelly, or Don Seleski was going to be traded to the Washington Capitals. And I read it, and I kind of just, you know, said, I, I've, I've got work to do today. I can't think about that very much. And it really freaked Schultze out. I mean, he read that article, and he said it really bothered him. Well, I talked to Davey. I felt I felt so bad for, for Schultze because we got talking on the plane. I mean, it was a love fest, right, when you win the Stanley Cup and we got to be together and skate the Cup in, in Buffalo as we really hadn't been given the opportunity the year before because there were so many fans on the ice in Philadelphia. But I, 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 I sat down beside Schultze, and we were having a beer on the plane, and he said, boy, am I ever glad we won that. He said, I wasn't even close to being in that game. I said, what do you mean? He said, I, my, I was so upside down emotionally. I, I read that I might be traded, that article in the paper, that was strategically placed. I mean, the writers then were, you know, were, we everybody got to know them. They were fans of the team as opposed to, you know, guys that were competing with one another to write provocative and, and evocative stories. So uh, Davey read that. And he was completely undressed by it, and I felt really bad for him because he said, "I'm," he said, "I'm so so thankful I didn't make a bad mistake in that game because I wasn't in it even a bit from start to finish." Uh, and yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of interesting how things like that help you evaluate your ability to focus through things one way or the other. Right, mm-hmm. you you're, yeah. you either have to get better at it, or you you confirm that you're not too bad at it as it is. Um, I'm just thankful that we won as well. But yeah, I mean, and 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 the the draft was less than two weeks after that last game, and and I was driving back to Canada and stopped at my wife's uh, aunt's place in Syracuse, spent the night there, and she woke me up at about eight in the morning. Um, and she came into the bedroom where I was sleeping, and she knocked on the door and opened the door, and she said. Keith Allen's on the phone. He wants to speak to you. And I sat straight up in bed and went out loud. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and that's when Keith Keith very politely said, "You're moving on, son." 
So we got about five minutes to go, and I really I want to give as much time as we can to your broadcasting career. So you got traded to the Caps of the draft pick, turned out to be Mel Bridgman. Uh, you end up going to the Flames. You spent seven years. Team captain, made two All-Star games, great defensive player, uh, and then begins the transition out. Uh, you retire in 1981. Uh, eventually you move into broadcasting. And you are part of a duo here in Philadelphia that many people, myself included, consider one of the best I've ever seen or heard do any team, which is you and Doc Emmerich. Uh, the chemistry you guys had I just thought was great. If I can ask you, um, what was it like to work with Doc? Um, and and did you realize you guys were as great as you were? No, I don't think we realized we were, you know, it's funny, we, you just work from the inside out and really don't have the opportunity to, I mean, there's, there's no broadcast Olympics where somebody says, Hey, these guys win the gold medal. Yeah. And we, we, we were just focused on, on, on excellence. And that's, that's one thing that I so loved about working with doc. Not only was he generous and kind and sensitive as a partner, but we both wanted to be really good at what we did and we worked really hard at being really good. We, I'd have a little training camp at my house for about three years in a row. And Coatsy jumped in on it. And we would do all kinds of, of different television scenarios and, and different calls and just try to hone our craft. But um, Doc, it, it was such a privilege to be able to work with Doc. And by the way, I worked with 36 different play-by-play partners in my career. Some of them only one game. But the guys that I worked with the longest, and I was so fortunate, Doc and then Gary Thorne, and then Jim Jackson. I mean, this complete professionals. And I tell people, anybody that will, is willing to listen, I said, you know what they all have in common? The best play-by-play guys, they're really freaking smart. I mean, their IQs are off the chart. I mean, Doc is, Doc is called Doc because he has a PhD. A lot of people don't know that, you know, in communication. Yeah, sure. yep. So, um, yeah, I was so blessed to be able to work with, with guys that were – you know, that, that were really bright and that really cared about their craft and wanted to excel. And those three guys are the three men that I work with the longest, Jim Jackson, Gary Thorne, and Doc Emmerich. And I, I, I don't know if you could ask for anything more than that as an analyst. No, they were, they were great teams, all of them, and you were certainly a big part of that. You know, Bill, I remember doing, oh, guys, must have been 10 years, maybe more after your career was over, uh, doing a retrospective about uh, the Broad Street Bullies and that era and the back-to-back cups and the teams that you were a part of. And I said to you, you know, there's still very mixed emotions up through the Canadian provinces and through the hierarchy of the National Hockey League about what that Flyer team represented and that era of hockey. And you know, as well as everybody else knows, that you were not you were not a popular champion team. I mean, there, there, was, a lot right. of, there were a lot of people didn't like that team, didn't like their style of play. Uh, and look back on that, and, you know, 10 Dryden's written books about it. That was a dark era for hockey and everything. And you said, you know, the people who feel that way about our team, they can go to hell, was what you said. And I thought, you know, and I thought that was, <laughs> you know, I understood exactly where that was coming from. Because other people kind of gave political answers about it. But you just said, basically, look, our team, we were really good. We had a lot of really good players, a lot of whom were in the Hall of Fame. And we played our butts off every night and filled every building in the National Hockey League. So anybody that wants to sit on a high horse now and criticize us, they can go to hell. I thought that was really well said. I haven't changed my opinion one bit, right? <laughs> uh, since then, we're, I'm, I'm non-apologetic. I don't think any of our players are. 
And I really think that all of those people that were Flyers haters, look, you, you end up living vicariously through your team, whether you're a writer or a fan. And, and, and it, it's, it's almost like being a parent. It, like if your kid came home and every day he was, had a black eye because the other kid at school was bigger and stronger and tougher than him, you'd end up hating him too. But I, I, I really think that, you know, people live vicariously through their connections with their sports teams. And it's one thing for their team to lose. You kind of go home licking your wounds. But when you lose and you also lose the battles and the physical battles and the fights, it's insulting to many people. And I think really that the genesis of a lot of those opinions about it being bad for the sport was simply a product of them, you know, crying because they, they not only lost, but got beat physically in the process. Uh, at least some of it is that I, I don't think that anybody ever, and, and you know what, it's, nobody in Boston said that we were, you know, anti Christs and, and didn't belong in the NHL. The people in Montreal might have, but t- the Montreal Canadians, uh, they they played hard, and they were if they they were bloodied, but they were unbowed most of the time. Uh, I'm yeah, I, I mean, I, I still say that Ray. I think people can go to hell that, that they didn't evaluate our team for for what we had. It was the image that we had that made them say that we didn't belong, that we didn't deserve the cups. We had a gosh, take a look at the players that we had: Barber and Leach and McLeish and Jimmy Watson and Bernie. Come on, we we had a really good team. They just didn't like our style. But I'm not I'm non apologetic. I will I will say that again <laughs> as loudly as I can. Bill Clement, uh, you had a lot of uh, opportunities over the last 25 years or so after your career, when, when you were broadcasting, excuse me, uh, ESPN, NBC, you did the Olympics, you acted, uh, you were in a soap opera for a while, you are you were the voice of a uh, NHL video game, which is where my kids remember you from. Any that was a, a favorite gig over those years? You know, the, the only thing that I've ever done that really spoke back to me and said, this is what you were meant to do, was not hockey. It was not broadcasting. It was acting. Hmm. And we were living in New York. My, my wife, I had, I had divorced um, my first wife, and my wife, Sissy, and I had met on an audition. We were paired up to read as husband and wife, and we, we, we did really well in Atlanta, asked agents if we were good enough to compete in New York. They said, sure, yeah, you are. So we went to New York. We still weren't, weren't married. But the phone rang one day, and it was ESPN asking me if I wanted to, to audition for one of their jobs as color analyst. And I can tell you guys that auditioning for your lunch and your rent as an actor every week, it, it's, it's hard. So the idea of a regular paycheck kind of appealed to me, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll audition for one of the spots as color analyst. Brad Park had left the booth and gone to coach the Detroit Red Wings. So I said, what does the uh, audition consist of? And they said, a live game on the air. And I swallowed real hard, and I said, okay, and went to Chicago Stadium and did a game, Minnesota North Stars in Chicago, and ended up getting the job and never looked back and and did very well broadcasting. But the one thing that seemed to speak to me was acting, and and I loved it, but I had to make the choice. My, My broadcasting career grew. As it grew, the emphasis on an acting career, that's why my name is pronounced Clement now. I was Bill Clement my whole life. But when I got to ESPN, I said, can we pronounce my name Clement on the air? I don't want to be recognized as a sportscaster when I go into a serious acting audition. And they said, yeah, sure. So I'm the only one in my family stuck with a mispronunciation of my name. 
Bill, we gotta we gotta wrap this up. Um, uh, w- one last question. I want to ask you what you're kind of doing in retirement. But before that, last time we spoke to you, which um, was shortly after hockey came back from the pandemic, um, you were out as a broadcaster at NBC Sports Philadelphia, and you know you said you were ready for retirement, but there was a sense that they kind of had left you hanging there. Um, is that true? And how do you feel about that looking backwards? I think it was, t- I think I was ready to retire, but I-, I would have to wait and wait and wait and wait to see what my role would be to see if there was a contract offer coming my way. And I, I in that sense, I felt disrespected that I, that I deserved more communication than that. So it was time. I, I wish it had happened differently because I, I did not feel that I was respected as I was preparing for my retirement. Um, and I, I move on. I, you know, I, I don't hold grudges and I don't look back. My nature is to always look forward. I, and the rear view mirror is, is something that is for other people, I guess. I'm, I'm too busy figuring out what I'm going to do next. So there was a, a somewhat of a bad taste in my mouth, but you know, a little bit of mouthwash and, 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 and a martini and everything's okay moving <laughs> well, forward. I would I would separate those two by an hour or so, but I get you. Uh, <laughs> listen, it, it was uh, it was a pleasure watching you as a player in this town. It was definitely a pleasure having you as a broadcaster, and uh, it's been a pleasure for us this hour. Bill Clement is our guest on Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. Bill, all the best to you, man. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 